Let's turn in God's Word together uh, again to Exodus chapter 20. So we continue looking at the Ten Commandments together and come to the second commandment this morning. Again, I encourage you if, you, if you missed any of the introductory sermons, that um, it might be very helpful to go back and listen to those. Those are posted. This gives a lot of, uh, we thought through a lot of um, the context of God's law and it's how it relates to God's grace and um, how it relates to our lives in Christ. We're going to read um, the first verse through the second commandment here through, through verse 6. So hear God's holy word. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." And our reading there. Several weeks ago, we noted in, in talking about the Ten Commandments generally that most of the Ten Commandments give us a, a specific uh, sort of culminating sin to avoid, um, a, a chief example for a whole category of sins, or a, or a specific example that's taken from a broader, um, a broader principle. The whole Bible would have us understand the commands that way, I think, but, but Jesus himself makes that very clear in the Sermon on the Mount in how he talks about the commandments. He talks about the sixth commandment, that, uh, for example, that, that chief example in that category, that the culminating sin there is murder, but Jesus would have us think all the way back to the very seed of, of murder, which is invisible, anger, bitterness in your heart, um, and, and everything that might lead up to, to harming someone else in that way. Um, the fifth commandment um, would, uh, it gives a specific example relative to parents, honoring your parents, but I think rightly we understand that as a, an example of the category of, of honoring rightful authority, um, a proper authority. So Jesus' guidance there is, is going to guide our examination of the second commandment today. So first we're going to consider what is specifically prohibited um, uh, this, this key example that's given in the second commandment. And then secondly, what, what's the broader principle? What's the broader law uh, behind that that would help us, help us fill that out and, and think about our, our whole life? Um, and then we'll look at the warning and the promise that's attached uniquely to this, this particular command here. So first, the, the specific command, uh, which I'm summarizing there in your outline, is no images of God. No images of God. So in verse 4 and 5, we take them together. Uh, the point, if, if you just read verse 4, it might sound like, well, can we even do art? That, that's not the point. Uh, God will shortly after command all kinds of beautiful art for the tabernacle and the temple and, and gift people with skills to, to carve things and, and to sew and, and so on. Um, the, the point, taking those verses together, is anything that you would worship. Uh, anything that you would worship. Uh, there's overlap here with the first commandment, 
Um, the first commandment makes clear there's, there's nothing in the entire creation that could be worshipped. Uh, only God. There's no other gods that exist or, or could exist. Um, but there's an important progression here. The second commandment is not simply reiterating what the first commandment said. The first commandment is about which, which God do we worship? Are there any others? And the second commandment is, is how is he worshipped? Uh, how do we worship? Uh, there, there's already, first commandment, no possibility of worshipping any other God or any other idol in that sense. So I think the main meaning of uh, the second commandment is, is the true God is not to be worshipped with idols, with objects, images, anything that's created, that the true God is not to be imaged in any way. Uh, God makes that clear elsewhere. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 uh, is one place where the, the second commandment is basically uh, reiterated in, in, in slightly different words. God says this to Israel, You saw no form of any kind on the day the Lord spoke to you. Uh, that is, when he, when he spoke to them, they only heard. They heard his word, but there was nothing to see. There was, no, there was no image. And so God says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. He's not talking about an idol of Baal or some other god. He's saying, he's talking about himself. When I spoke to you, you saw no form, so don't make a form. Don't, don't make some kind of an image that you would use to worship me, hear my word. So the, the issue in the second commandment is not so much worship of a false God now, but false worship of the true God. Um, and there's a, the, the best, one of the best examples of this in the scriptures is one probably familiar to us, that of the golden calf. If, if you went forward several chapters here in Exodus, uh, Moses has been on the mountain for a long time and uh, they don't know where he's gone, and, and they haven't heard from God for a while, and the Israelites are getting restless, uh, getting impatient, and, and they end up making this golden calf. Uh, why a golden calf? Well, it's, it's from Egypt, their experience in Egypt. It's a symbol of power and, and strength, and so they have something tangible to, to look to because they haven't heard from God for a while. And it's, it, it, this story is often misunderstood in the way it's read. Sometimes we think, well, they... The Israelites went off and made a different God. They, they turned away from the God of Israel and they said, we're going to make a different God. That's, not, that's clearly not what they're doing there. Uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, pro- proclaims a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord God, and, and makes this calf. And he says, we're going to worship the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt with this golden calf. It's a, it's a way of worshiping the true God is what they came up with. Uh, They wanted something tangible, something manipulable, something to represent God's power and strength to them. But this is exactly what the second commandment prohibits. Um, And you know the rest of the story, God's wrath, Moses' wrath too, that that rained down on them uh, for worshiping him him in in, in a different way than he had instructed or with, with, with an image. Now, I think it's helpful to pause, well, with any of the Ten Commandments, but, but here to ask, why? Uh, why the second commandment? Uh, wh- what's the big deal? Why, why does God not want objects or images or uh, created representations of him? Um, so here are a few reasons, a few things to think about. What, the first is simply that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. Um, he's invisible. He's infinite. He's, he's incomprehensibly so. And so there's simply no way to picture him, to physically represent him that that could capture who he is. Um, 
Uh, and so a logical conclusion of that is any, any attempt to try to uh, paint God or form God in any way would, would be false. It would be a distortion. It, it's not possible. It would, it would simply be a reflection of our imagination. Um, it, it would come up short. Um, it would bring him down to earth, to our level. This is basically what Paul says in Acts, 9, Acts 17. Paul is in Athens. He's interacting with the, the Greek philosophers. Uh, he noted, he, he's noted all their, their many gods, their many idols around. And, and he addresses them this way. He said, being then God's offspring, he's assuming they all have some off, uh, understanding of being uh, the offspring of God. He said, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I think it's, it's not possible to image God out of stone or, or gold or something like that. If, and Paul's essentially saying someone could be really sincere, someone could be really creative, they could be really skilled uh, in the arts, but it simply and necessarily will distort the reality of God. Paul says it, it can't be done. Uh, one writer puts it this way, an idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the living God dead, the spiritual God physical. I'm sure all of you have seen the Sistine Chapel, um, uh, Michelangelo's many Many paintings, many famous paintings on that. There are multiple representations of God on the Sistine Chapel. Uh, I don't know how Michelangelo related that to the Second Commandment, uh, or, or if he thought about that. The, the most famous of those is the creation of Adam. You all have seen that probably many, many times. Uh, the, the picture of God there, he's, he's sort of reclining, and he's, his finger is down, and, and Adam's finger is up. He's, he's creating. It's the creation of Adam. Um, and the, the depiction of God there is as a, an older gentleman. He has gray hair. He has a, a gray beard. But he also has, it looks like he could bench or squat 1,000 pounds. Is, is uh, an, impressive, an impressive figure. We might, we might ask, you know, does that depiction, humanly, faintly, does it represent something true about God? And, and we might say, yes, in some sense, God created Adam. He created Adam in his own image. It maybe pictures that in, in some way. Um, he's, he's powerful. Um, but, but certainly it fails utterly to capture the glory of God. Uh, God is not a human. Uh, certainly it distorts who he is. And, and whatever the picture, particulars are anyways, it's, it's exactly what the second commandment speaks to. Uh, not imaging the God that we worship. Another reason we, in answering the question why, why the second commandment might be that <clears throat> uh, these things tend toward, humans tend toward superstition. Uh, humans have always tended to want something tangible, something manipulable or a, a ritual we can go through or an object you can keep close to that makes you feel like you, you're closer to God or you have some, some special access to God's grace or power, functioning sort of like a good luck charm. Right? Um, the Israelites sometimes treated the Ark this way, the Ark of the Covenant. Right? They, there are a number of times they carried it off to battle with them, like a good luck charm. Like if we have the Ark with us, that'll give us extra power. God said, that's not, what it's, that's not how this works. <laughs> Just come to me in prayer. Take the Ark back. Right? Um, sometimes Christians can tend to think in, in some degree, well, uh, maybe about that, like with 
with a cross or, or a, a church building or, or things like that. Um, people in church history have had superstitious beliefs relative to demon possession. So, and the idea that you need a crucifix or you need a certain person or a certain set of words to deal with this. Um, I've been asked more than once about such a thing, about casting out a demon. I, I have never ended up having any direct contact with a supposed case of, of demon possession, but I've been asked more than once, what, what method should be used? What, what should we do? Who should do it? And that kind of thing. And, and my, my response has simply been, I think you only need the, the, the one grace-accessing tool that God has ever given, that ever existed, for this kind of thing. Just pray. All right, just pray to God. Doesn't matter who, doesn't matter what words you use. Come to God. God wants us to attribute all power and grace to Himself and, and not to an object or, or something that we might imagine would be a, a special channel of grace that we've created. Um, another answer, another important answer to the question why, why the second commandment in this particular prohibition is that true religion, true knowledge of God is, is word based. Right? That's, that's by God's design. Um, God desires, God is jealous, we'll, we'll come to that in a few minutes here, that his revelation of himself would be what dominates our understanding of him entirely. That he gets to define in his word who he is. Uh, not our imaginations, not our creativity, not our opinions, not our experiences. Those are all good things in, in, in their place. But, but we must conceive of God based on what his word says alone. Uh, our, our thoughts of him, our worship of him uh, is to exalt his majesty. It's, it's to confront us with uh, his glory uh, based on his word. Now, secondly, on your outline there, uh, the, the positive principle. Um, that this is, is backing up and asking, okay, there, there's the specific prohibition uh, in this command, what, what is the principle, what's the law that's, that's behind this? The, the clear implication, the clear principle uh, that, that is here as well is that there's a right way and a wrong way to worship God, right? Uh, and that God determines what that means. Um, this, this is something that's reiterated clearly other places in the scriptures. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, for example, God says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, and he's pointing his finger, as it were, to the, the nations around who are worshiping their gods in all kinds of different ways uh, that they'd come up with. God says, not in that way. He said, everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So however God says, this is how you're to worship me. This is how you're to uh, relate to me, commune with me. You're, you're to use that. Don't use less. Don't use more. And that, that's the, the um, historic principle in theology that, that we refer to as the regulative principle of worship. It's simply that we offer to God in worship what God has prescribed in his word. Um, and, and we don't simply avoid what God forbids. God says don't offer your children you know, sacrifices and, and things like that. We don't simply avoid what he forbids, but we, we limit ourselves to what God gives us to use uh, in our worship. There's a, a powerful, um, sobering example of this worked out in, in the Old Testament. Uh, in Leviticus, uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, 
uh, were also priests. They served in the temple, uh, and they, they, God struck them dead um, for worshiping outside of the way that he had prescribed. And it's, and it's uh, powerful to note that Nadab and Abihu, had not, it's not that they had run off to the Baal, Baal temple and, and started worshiping another god. They were in the tabernacle. With, with the implements and, and, and sacrifices that God had given. And yet, in some way, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't uh, say exactly how. Some way, they decided to do it their way. And, and God struck them dead on the spot. It's, it's a sobering illustration of how seriously God takes how his people conceive of him and how we worship him. Um, we might think, well, is this, is this just an Old Testament principle? Uh, maybe this is God, how God related to his people in the Old Testament. Uh, now we're led by the Spirit, and, and maybe we're free from any particular way of worshiping. Um, I don't think there's any logical way to get to that conclusion in understanding God uh, and his worship in, in a biblical theology, but, but the New Testament reiterates such things as well. Hebrews 12 says, Let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We come before God with, the Bible holds all kinds of things uh, in, in balance. We, we come to God as Father with great confidence and so on, but we're also to conceive of him in worship, Hebrews 12, as a, as a consuming fire, God of judgment. And so we offer to him acceptable worship, which implies there is such thing as unacceptable worship. And, and God hasn't left us to come up with what that means, with a method or with ways of communing with him. Uh, God, has, God has provided the ways that we commune with him. Uh, prayer, that's not a human invention. That's God's idea. That's God's gift uh, of grace. Uh, singing praise, uh, the sacraments. Uh, these are the ways that God has appointed for us to commune with him, uh, responding to the preaching of his word. Um, so we have, we have these clear biblical rules, guidelines, but, but we can also just think about this Logically, um, how could I, as a sinful, finite human, how could I have the foggiest clue about how to appropriately approach a, a holy, eternal God? Uh, how could I have any idea without my creator telling me what, what medium of worship is pleasing to him or is good for me, um, is, a, is a channel through which God will bless me? You know, imagine... If you can jump back, you know, in history a ways to, you know, some glorious, powerful autocrats of the past, you know, an emperor of Japan or something like that, and imagine you had opportunity to appear before such a, a powerful person, uh, you would certainly uh, want to know, how am I supposed to do it, right? What's my timing? What am I supposed to say? Where do I stand? What do I not say? Uh, how do I bow? Or whatever, whatever the questions would be. Uh, you, you'd have no idea. You, you certainly wouldn't think that you could just leave that up to your imagination or to your best intentions. You'd simply, you'd want to know, well, how much more is that true uh, in coming before a holy God? I, I want to, uh, this, this isn't, uh, this is another thing that's not a, uh, directly addressed or implied in, in the second commandment, but, but it's certain, certainly part of our understanding of the second commandment from the, from the entire scriptures, and that is to make the point that, that God's word is also clear that acceptable worship 
is and must be from the heart. It's not, it's not simply or mainly about our outward form and how it's done. Uh, the, main, the main part of how it's done is, is how our hearts are in worship. Um, you can get all the rituals, the forms right, but worship that's not driven by the heart, by a love for God, a relationship with, with a loving Father is not worship. That, that's the clear teaching of the rest of scriptures. Um, Psalm 51 David, uh, David confesses, you know, these sacrifices, Lord, these outward things, they, these are not in and of themselves what you want. And how does, he, how does he describe what the Lord wants there? A broken and contrite spirit, right? Uh, there's no room for pride in worshiping anyway, in the, in the right way, uh, even. Uh, now, now, sincerity is not a replacement for, for work, carefully approaching God in, in how we worship and thinking about that carefully. We can be sincerely wrong, um, but it's a necessary part of worshiping God as, as someone who loves him, someone who's in relationship with him. And one form, final piece of that is, is to say that most importantly, God's acceptable way of worship, Hebrews 12, offering acceptable worship to God, is through Jesus Christ is only through Jesus Christ. The, the only true worship is worship that relies on the person and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus for you. Uh, Jesus alone makes worshipers acceptable to God. Uh, whatever we think of our, how right our form is or how right my heart is, it's Jesus alone that makes worshipers acceptable to God. None of us worship perfectly in form. None of us worship perfectly in, in heart. Uh, and so the only reason any of us worships in any way that is acceptable to our loving Heavenly Father is because we have a faithful Savior and mediator that the Father has given for us. So true worship always and only begins with submitting to Jesus as Savior and, and continues by clinging to him. Now, uh, next on your outline there, I want you to consider with me a very practical question related to all of this, uh, related especially to, to the first point there. Um, that is, what about depictions, what about representations of Jesus? Uh, so we've been talking about God in, in general, the eternal, invisible God cannot be represented, but God became a man, right? God took on real humanity and physical form. He, he lived a real life on the earth, a visible, recognizable person. And, and he remains a visible, visible recognizable person today. Uh, and so, perhaps the conclusion is it's, it's quite legitimate to portray Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity. Um, maybe that even would serve to affirm his humanity, right? To, to affirm his historicity. Uh, now, this is not a question that, that all believers um, agree on, um, uh, in history, there's been big um, debates and divisions about this in history, and, and certainly still today, it's not something that all Christians, probably not all of us in this room, think the same way about this. Um, some of you may have never even thought of the question, representations of, of Jesus relative to the second commandment. But whether you have thought about it or not, or whatever your conclusion is, I, I just want to encourage you to give it some careful thought this morning. It would seem an important 
um, uh, one important application of the second commandment. Uh, we ought not to set it aside as unimportant simply because not everybody agrees about it or, or uh, it's maybe not perfectly clear. How we conceive of and how we represent God is central to the second commandment is, and is obviously, if we read the whole thing, enormously important to God. Um, our, our church, our, our church tradition, our, our denomination, uh, along with all other, the, the whole Reformed tradition, takes a position on that question uh, that, that picturing any members of the Trinity, in, including Jesus and his humanity, is, is not consistent with the second commandment. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that everyone, everyone has that conclusion or, or has to have that conclusion. Um, sincere, mature believers can see that differently, I think. But I, I think that position is biblical, um, and, and it's an important thing to consider, not to be, not to be careless about. Uh, again, we're going to come in a moment to the, the arresting weightiness of God's warning here uh, in this command about carefully and absolutely uh, keeping this commandment and how we think about him, how we represent him to ourselves or, or to others. So uh, here are a few factors that, that I share with you to, to, to ask you to consider. Um, factors, I think, tip the scales in favor of not making representations, even of Jesus, even though he was and is a man. So, so paintings, movies, statues, and so on. Uh, the, the first factor to think about is simply that Jesus is God. We'll start with a hopefully non-controversial statement like that. Uh, Jesus is God, but, but here's the point. The second commandment forbids making any images of the God that we worship. And Jesus is God. Uh, if it were somehow biblically possible or, or righteous to make such an image of any of the persons of the Trinity, it seems it would be logical. It would have to be a, a perfectly true image. We, we can't represent God in a way that's not true, that's not accurate. So that, that raises several issues with picturing Jesus, even though he was and is a true human. Uh, the, the Apostle John says, for example, we beheld his glory. He and the apostles beheld the glory of Christ. Well, we, we cannot, in making a picture, a video, or something, portray Christ's glory. We can portray a generic human, we can't portray the glory of Christ, his divinity. I'm not sure even, even what that would mean. Um, any image that we would make of, of Jesus even is necessarily false because we don't know what he looked like, right? Um, the Bible makes no effort as well to, to preserve any description about what Jesus looked like, um, with maybe one exception, there's one statement about the appearance of Jesus in the scriptures. Uh, if you remember in Isaiah 53, what that says, it says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, that, that sounds different to me than the, the typical Jesus portrait that we can all picture in our minds. You can picture one right now. We've seen, we've seen many of them. Um, it's always a very handsome person. Right with soft skin and wavy hair, and uh, you know, well-trimmed American-looking beard, and and a far-off look in his eyes. Right, you can all picture that. Um, but but part of the point is is all, I think all the reasons that we could think of, you know, why did God give the second commandment? We we can't come up with an accurate image of God. We 
will necessarily make distortions as sinners in our imaginations. I think all of those things apply to Jesus as well. We might think, well, we, we could have a representation of Jesus maybe, but, but not worship it, right? That's, that's central to the second commandment, not imaging what you worship. So maybe we wouldn't hang a picture of Jesus here, uh, but, but at home, maybe that's, that's qualitatively different. And I think that's a, that's a legitimate question to, to raise. I would just ask, can you think of Jesus? Can you be told about your Lord? Can you be shown your Lord and not respond with worship? I don't think we ought to be able to do that. Uh, th- this is a point that John Murray makes, uh, for example. He says, a picture of Jesus, if it serves any useful purpose, should evoke some thought or feeling of respecting him. And, and in view of what he is, this thought or feeling will be worshipful. Uh, we cannot avoid making a picture a medium of worship. And, and I, think that's, I think that's logically true. Uh, a, a second consideration, a uh, second thing for you to think about is that depictions of God take our imaginations away from, from God's self-revelation. Uh, whether it's the Sistine Chapel or whatever kind of a, a depiction, the, the point of the second commandment is our conception of God, including Jesus, uh, is to be dominated by his self-revelation. He tells us how to think about him. Um, that we would humbly let him tell us what we need to know and, and not, not guess at anything further. Um, consider a couple practical examples of that. Uh, one way Jesus is depicted popularly is in movies or series or shows, uh, certainly with good intentions, with love for God and, and desire for his truth to be, to be shared, in, in some cases at least. But just think honestly about the nature of a, of a TV depiction of God. Right? Not only is, is the character of Jesus not accurate, that's, that's, not a, that's just, that's just uh, the, the nature of it, right? Um, it, it's not a true picture of Jesus. Um, almost the whole show, again, not intentionally or uh, in an intentionally misleading way or something like that, but the whole show is basically inaccurate, right? It goes far beyond God's self-revelation of himself and of the story. Um, and, and of God's actual words. Uh, virtually all the, the body language, the facial expressions, the attitudes and emotions, they're, they're all guesses. They may be sanctified guesses in some sense, but they're guesses. They're, they're, they come out of a writer's imagination. And it, and it seems to me that's, that's what the second commandment is, is steering us away from. Most troublingly would be dialogue, right? Putting words into the very mouth of God into the very mouth of Jesus. And, and the, the question is, is not, could God use such a thing, or, or has God used such a thing for good? Um, I, I don't think that's really a relevant question to the second commandment. The question is, what is, what is, God, what is God requiring? What is pleasing to God? Uh, sh- should we easily be able to say, oh, what's the harm? You know, we know it's just a movie. We know it's not really true. It's kind of like saying, well, it's just a golden calf, Lord. What's the harm? Uh, is God pleased? Are we helped by, by making representations of him, especially by putting words in his mouth that we know are not true, that he didn't speak, that are, we know are, are misleading? 
Um, God has appointed, I mean, this should be our focus, God has appointed two ways of Jesus being presented and conceived of. That's his word, his word being preached, and, and the sacraments. We think especially the Lord's Supper. This is, how God, this is how God is appointed that we would conceive of and receive Jesus. Another practical example uh, of our maybe being tilted away from God's revelation by, by our making a likeness, making a depiction of God, second commandment. Think about the story of Jesus' birth, uh, Luke chapter 2. What's, what's emphasized uh, in God's word, God's account of what happened there in Jesus' birth? What stands out? I would suggest primarily it's, it's the shocking fact that, that the Son of God, the King of Kings, is born among filthy animals. He has no bed to lay in. Right? And there's, there's no dignitaries there to celebrate this. Only dirty, rotten shepherds. He's born into a poor family. The, the major point of that scene in Luke 2, though it's to, to evoke joy and, and worship from God's people, the major point of the scene is the utter humiliation of the Son of God, the gross humiliation of it. Now, if we compare that with, with a, you know, the usual typical nativity scene, which, of course, is another depiction of, of Jesus, a graven image of, of Jesus, what, what's the emphasis in that typical scene? It's sweetness, it's cuteness, right? There's a, there's a sentimentality to it, always. Um, that's what dominates. There's nothing in artip, artistic depictions of, of the pain and the exhaustion and the gore and the crying of birth and the utter humiliation, the shocking humiliation of God, which is the point of God's account. And so it's just another example I encourage you to think about in how trying with, with, with good intentions, with sanctified intentions in some sense, trying to depict God usually ends up steering us into opposite conclusions, opposite impressions of, of how God's word might, might guide us. And then one final thing to consider in, in this application is, is that the nature of our faith uh, the very character of our faith in the New Testament is defined as being by hearing and not by sight. Right? There are a pile of, of scriptures we could cite. Here, here are a few to think about. 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. John 20 Jesus said to him, have you believed, this is speaking to Thomas, of course, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Anticipating all the history of the church since then, as, as those who have not ever seen Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, if we walk by faith, uh, for we walk by faith, Paul says, not by sight. Again, New Testament faith is defined by not involving sight, uh, because only a handful of people saw Jesus. And, and knew what it was to, to see Jesus and, and behold, behold, behold his glory in that sense. Romans 8, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. And, and I, as, I, as I read that, that, nature, that, that key part of the nature of our faith, 
there in the New Testament. I can't imagine any of the apostles writing these things and then thinking, well, wait a second. We could just make a statue of him. We kind of remember what he looked like. And then faith could be by sight. That, that's, not what they, that's not what they say. And, and no one in the history of the church for hundreds of years even thought to make a picture of Jesus in the history of the church. It didn't come to mind. The New Testament over and over assumes that we will be people who do not picture with our eyes or believe with our eyes until Jesus comes again. And so we have this whole other set of passages that anticipate with longing seeing the face of Jesus. The the apostles write over and over again, we don't see the face of Jesus, we long to see his face someday when he returns. 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 John 3, John says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we'll see him as he is. So uh, those things for you to consider as, as one, one application, one, one tricky application because of the incarnation, because Jesus did become man and, and is physical. Let's, let's move on to consider uh, three on your outline, uh, God's warning here. God attaches a reason to this uh, commandment that's that's unique. Uh, look at verse five. He gives this saying, "For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." That word "jealous" needs some definition because uh, in in English and in our human relationships, jealousy is almost always bad, right? It's it's a it's a vice. It's a, a human evil. Um, it's an insecure, even bitter envy towards someone else. So, what is God's jealousy? It can't be sinful. It's God's jealousy is his zeal. It's, it's his burning passion for his glory. Uh, we talked last week about the first commandment. God, God tolerates no rivals. Uh, here he's, he's zealous, he's passionate about how we think about him and how we portray him, how we conceive of him, how we worship him. He's jealous for that. Um, sometimes we need to be Jealous or zealous in that sense for things that belong to us. A father jealously guards his family, jealously protects his children. God has a burning zeal that we not share our worship and love and covenant relationship with idols or with, with any sin. We talked about last, last week how any sin really is, is sharing our relationship with God with, with some idol. Uh, ultimately our, ourself. God says, when you worship me the way that you want to or conceive of me the way that you want to, I'm, I'm like, a, like a husband whose wife has cheated. I'm jealous. And he wants you to enjoy his amazing grace fully and exclusively, not, not spoil it with, with cheap, worthless substitutes. And this, this jealous God, in that sense, gives an arresting warning here. A jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Uh, honoring God as God, worshiping him as, as he appoints, is for sinners life and death. It, you know, after all, it's, it's serving our idols rather than true God that, that has people under the wrath of God. That, that's our need for Christ. 
Uh, here in, in verse 5, the curse is for, he says, the iniquity. And, and he says, of those who hate me. Uh, iniquity, the, that Hebrew word, that part of the nuance is something that's twisted, something that's perverted. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to hear, but God's saying that Making images of him, worshiping him outside of how he directs, rejecting his ways, that, that's a perversion of the one true God. The good, just, perfect God. It's even an evidence, he says, of hating him. Um, and he says that it earns his judgment to the third and fourth generations. That's maybe the trickiest part to think about here. That sounds... He sounds unfair. It sounds like the, the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren are being punished for the sin of, of their father. Well, we need to understand what's being said in the context of the whole Bible. It, it's clear in the whole Bible that individuals are held responsible for, for their own sins. Um, in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, it's almost like Ezekiel 18, 20 exists to answer this question. Uh, it says, the soul who sins shall die. The, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Right? So I, I don't think it's a, an automatic mathematical generational punishment that is in view here. Uh, another key truth of the entire scriptures to keep in mind is that anyone who turns to God in faith will be saved. No matter who you are, or what family you're from, or what you've done, or what you've said in the past, anyone who turns to God will be saved. Um, the, the, the verse also, another thing to notice here, the verse itself assumes the guilt of these children. It's maybe not quite as clear in the NAS here, but it, it may be in your translation if you have a different one. It's, it's the, of those who hate me. That, that's the children. That's their hate. It's, it's you may have children who grow up to hate me, who will raise further children who hate me as well and reject me. And, and so it's in part a statement, I think, of, of God's justice. He will continue to pursue justice for the consequences of, of your turning away from him. There are, part of the point may be your, your children won't be able to say, well, I'm just doing what dad taught me. They'll be responsible for, for their turning to the Lord or not turning to the Lord as well. And, and there are consequences sometimes, generationally, for, for a father's sin, for parents' sin. But we also need to see that statement and hear it in the context of the promise of verse 6. He says, but... Showing love, loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments are given in the context of grace. Right? They come out of God saying, I am your God already. I, I've made you my children. I rescued you out of Egypt. Now here's how you, here's how you live as my children. They're, they're part of God's gift of grace. And so... He's not saying, keep these rules and you'll earn my favor. Don't keep these rules and you'll, you'll not earn my favor. Uh, God is assuring his people in the, in the Ten Commandments, in the whole context, I've already given myself to you. I've loved you. I've saved you. So continue in a humble relationship of love that's, that's evidenced in a desire to, to worship your God, to, to, to think about him in the way that he presents himself. 
and, and know the blessing of God for a thousand generations. That, that's the promise here. And I, and I think the, the word generations isn't there, but it's verse 5 and verse 6 are parallel. I think that's the implication, right? It's those who hate me, those who love me, right? It's, it's three or four generations, it's a thousand generations. And again, it's not precise math, it's figurative for forever. It, it means forever. Who can conceive, really, of a thousand generations? And the promise is God's loving kindness. That's the Hebrew word has said. His, his unconditional covenant love and faithfulness to his people. Uh, not to those who will perform these things well enough, but to those who come to in faith, who, who live a life of repentance, uh, seeking God in his grace that's offered in the life and the death of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews Lest, again, lest we think this is something of an Old Testament statement, uh, Hebrews gives warnings that are basically the same thing. They're only stronger, right? Hebrews says, trample on the Son of God uh, and, and you will be cursed. But, but receive him in faith and listen to him and you'll know his unbreakable blessing forever, right? To a thousand generations. It's something equivalent of Jesus' promise, in the New Testament, I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this opportunity again this morning to consider uh, your word. And uh, Lord, it's not always easy to uh, think about your word and, and know how best we should apply it and um, we pray that you would help us to, to give careful thought to each of these commands as, as we go through them, uh, to see how they are your grace to us, uh, to see how they're pointing us to become like you, uh, to know a better way than the way that we would go on our own. Uh, we thank you that all of our failures uh, in, in these things are covered by the blood of Jesus, and we uh, pray in his name uh, for his glory. Amen.